It wasn't just about a business uh, deal. It wasn't just about a business conference. It was about creating a true festival experience that people loved and had a great time at. So what got us here is fantastic and we're standing on the shoulders of giants and great things, but let's, like, we can, if we stay so stationary, we're going to go down. So we, what's the, um, you know, the there's that S-curve theory with the business of, you know, you can be on the up growth, but if you're not innovating and creating your next S-curve, you know, you can drop down. I'm very much about everybody's can be involved. You know, anyone who wants to put a show on, I love that about the Adelaide Fringe has always been inclusive like that. Communication in the organisation is something we've worked really hard on cross-departmental communication, vertical, horizontal, um, it's all those things that you have to make sure that no, I mean, I always say I don't want anyone to say, I didn't, I never knew about that or I was the last to hear about that. I think there's some real work that can be done in bringing together different parts of the creative industries. There's some interdisciplinary connections that could take us on real step change and growth. Hey there, my name is Daniel Franco and this is the Creating Synergy podcast, your business and leadership podcast where we speak to high profile leaders and thinkers about their careers and dig deep by asking the questions we all want the answers to, uncovering their stories, strategies, leadership lessons and their secrets to success. So before we jump into the podcast, I wanted to start this one a little bit differently and put an ask out there for everyone listening in. We've been looking at the data lately and noticed that many people who listen to this podcast haven't actually subscribed to it yet. It would mean the absolute world to me for those who are listening in to subscribe. By doing so, the more subscribers we get, the more high quality leaders and experts we get on the podcast and share their stories with you. And from that, the more we all learn. So thanks in advance. Today, joining us on the show, we have the remarkable human being, Heather Crow, CEO of the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Heather is a visionary in the creative sector, bringing innovation and growth to everything she touches and was recently named CEO of the Year for CEO Magazine and ranked number 26 in the top 50 most influential people in South Australia for 2022. With over 800,000 ticket sales per year, the Adelaide Fringe Festival is the biggest arts festival in the Southern Hemisphere and the second largest fringe festival in the world. Heather is known for her adaptive and agile leadership methodologies that have helped implement innovative digital platforms and systems that drive change and growth. Under her leadership, every fringe festival that Heather has run has seen an increase in turnover, been met with high critical acclaim, delivered growth in ticket sales and expanded audience demographics. In this episode, we dive into Heather's journey, starting from the UK and the positive influence her parents played in her life. She shares a story behind the documentary that she directed and produced about her father filming him in his last moments. Titled Ye Old Father went on to win many awards. We also talk about the Adelaide Fringe Festival and all the things that happen behind the scenes and how she believes it has the potential to be the biggest fringe festival in the world. I absolutely love this chat with Heather and I know you're going to enjoy it too. So without further ado, here is my chat with Heather Crow. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. Today we have the amazing and wonderful Heather Crow on the show. Welcome. 
Thank you. Very excited. There is uh, big things happening in South Australia with Adelaide Fringe and you obviously head up the Adelaide Fringe Festival. So kudos to all the uh, amazing work that you're doing there. Um, before we jump in, I just want to just rattle off a few things about Heather that I've sort of conjured up and some of the accolades that you've <laughs> That you've received recently. So obviously CEO of the Adelaide Fringe, seven, second biggest uh, fringe festival in the world. Um, it has seen an increase in turnover, been met with critical acclaim and delivered increased ticket sales and expanded audience demographic ever since you've taken role of the, of the piece. And then, but some recent accolades, CEO of the year 2022 from the CEO magazine, Festival Management CEO of the Year in the CEO Monthly magazine, winner of the SA Tourism Awards in major festivals and events, winner of the Best Festival in Australia, named in the top 50 most influential people in South Australia. You have your own Wikipedia page, which <laughs> I found is really cool. And I'll throw this in, it's not exactly an accolade, but you're a lover of all things roller skating as well, which yes. is... <laughs> So not a bad little lineup there. Well done. Yeah, it's been an amazing couple of years of um, I keep getting these emails saying you're nominated for this and you've won that and, yeah, it's been pleasantly surprising well to, to be honest. We are running the second biggest, second mm. biggest fringe festival in the world so I yeah. think you're doing something right. Mm. Um, before we jump into all things Adelaide Fringe and, and I'd love to understand who Heather is and uh, the amazing human being who's sitting in front of me. What what do we need to know about your earliest context to mm. understand how you ended up where you are today? Well, um, when I uh, graduated from university, I was a documentary maker. For many years I was a documentary maker and, mm. I mean, still to this day I make documentaries. Yes. Um, but uh, as my, my early years of working in film and television, I um, – made documentaries for ABC and SBS and BBC, Channel 4, things like that. And I used to travel the world a lot, going to festivals and conferences to try and find international collaborators to co-produce films with. And in those days there was not that many Australian documentary makers mm. travelling to yeah. places in the early 90s. Um, I'd often be the only Australian filmmaker at big film festivals and I thought, oh, it's, you know, this is, these um, film festivals have got these amazing marketplaces, um, you know, Cannes um, um, documentary festival in um, Amsterdam called IDFA, big festivals across America yeah. and they really had these amazing marketplaces. They were more a marketplace than they were actually a general public film festival. Yeah, right. And so then um, I, I made a lot of connections with um, a lot of industry in those you know, early days and they're people that I continue to work with and, and stay connected with 30 years on. Um, and when I was appointed to run the Australian Documentary Conference, which was in the early 2000s, I really wanted to build this uh, marketplace there that was, uh, I guess, really heavily influenced by what I'd seen in uh, Europe and America and other places where they had strong marketplaces in, in festivals. And 
So I built this uh, market called the Meat Market. <laughs> and then we called it the M-E-E-T Meat oh, yes, Market. The meat, right, yeah. And it became an incredibly fruitful marketplace for mm. co-productions um, to sign deals. And, and so that was, I guess, when I set that up, I thought I want to build the market that exists in an Australian film festival that I wish existed when I first started mm. as a filmmaker so that I didn't always have to fly to yeah. overseas. <laughs> So that was something that I still think influences what I do to this very day because, mm. um, you know, we can talk a bit more about it as as we talk more. But um, I also have grown a very big marketplace behind the scenes at the Ad- Adelaide Fringe yes. as well. So un- really understanding that industry networking and matchmaking and, and helping artists, um, whether they're filmmakers or performers, whatever genre, um, helping those creative people make deals and close touring deals and funding deals is like a really important driver for me because it's just that um, acknowledgement that arts needs help in that business Mm. side. It's that the show biz. (laughs) We often think about the show but not so much the The business. And... Yeah, so that's my early days as a filmmaker. I, I got very heavily influenced by attending these film festivals and markets and and then um, I was always actually doing stuff for the Fringe as well. Yeah. With, like alongside I was um, working in different venues at the Fringe. I was a manager at the Star Club yep. which is yep. like one of the wonderful venues in the 90s yeah. down at the Lion Arts Centre. We had Stomp. Uh, where Stomp was yeah. a sellout, uh, lines down the street every night. Uh, we had big um, shows that went on to become television yeah, shows and yeah. um, fantastic, uh, you know, Doug Anthony, All Stars and those uh, fantastic uh, performers like that. And that was my, I guess, uh, job that I did while I was studying but yep. also even later when I was a filmmaker I still used to work at the Fringe it was just a love that I had to always come back and work at Fringe. Brilliant. And um, so I've always been involved in Fringe for many years. I'd, I'd love to jump in. We jump straight into becoming a filmmaker. What? Where? Let's go back early days, early days. So you're, you and your family from the UK, born over in the UK, is that correct? Yes. So my, and, parents, are, my parents are from Glasgow. Yeah. And... We moved here when I was a few years old. Yeah, okay, great. So what, what was the reason for them? You, your parents got some work over here or just starting a new life? Why did you guys come over to Australia? Well, my, my father was an obstetrician gynaecologist okay. yeah. and this was in the 10-pound POM days. Yeah. And so um, doctors were want, needed, yeah, okay. Australia needed doctors yeah. and uh, doctors were coming in from all over the world. Yeah, brilliant. And we moved, first we moved to Griffith. Okay. So just a very so over in New fleeting, South Wales, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fleeting moment, yep. not very long at all. And then that was where we were just stationed just to set up to have a look around. Mm-hmm. And then my dad, being a Glaswegian who basically wanted sunshine yep. and blue skies, yep. and so um, the, the different there were different organisations throughout the different health systems, they were sort of, basically fly doctors all over Australia and say, where do you want to live? And so my dad got flown to Tasmania and Mackay in Queensland and he got taken all over the place. And then he got to Wyala and the only question he ever asked at every town that he went was, 
how often does the sun shine here? And in Wyala they were like every day because, you know, it's yeah. in the desert basically. Yeah. Um, I mean it's where the desert meets the sea yeah. but at least it is still a desert climate. Absolutely. And so he was like, great, we'll move here. So we moved to Wyala, yeah, wow. which was a steel town, BHP. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so we, we set up there and my dad... And my mum actually both loved Wyala. Like mm-hmm. with, they were the biggest Wyala flag wavers. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was the best. Yeah. And so my father really stayed there and, you know, until he died. Yep. So, you know, 40 years of delivering babies, three generations. By the time he retired, he was delivering people who he had delivered the mother who was giving yeah, birth yeah. and the grandmother. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that was pretty funny. And so That's he amazing. delivered three generations of babies and everyone in the town knew him and he, you well, know. There's no so doubt. I got my wife's, my wife's, uh, some of my wife's family's from Wyala and I, there's mm. probably no doubt he's delivered some of my wife's family probably. over there. Which is, That's uh, probably true. And he was also, um, he was quite a big environmentalist mm. and um, when we first got there he was like, where's all the trees? There's not enough trees. <laughs> So one thing that when I was a child before school, it, almost every day, we used to go out and either water trees that he'd planted or we were collecting um, seeds from gum nuts. We used to drive around and get gum nuts off the trees and then uh, plant them and turn them into, you know, little seedlings. And then all over Wyala now, when you go to Wyala, there's thousands and thousands of fully sure. grown gum trees that... My dad planted in the 70s and oh, 80s. What an amazing story. A great legacy. Yeah. But uh, before school we used to drive around with <laughs> buckets of water in the old Volvo that he had and the water would be sloshing all over the place and we'd because ha- there was no hoses or anything, <laughs> you know, where he had planted these trees. <laughs> and so we had to water those um, seedlings. And now when I go to Whaler I just look around and go, wow, that, I never thought of it at the time. I just mm. thought it was a bit annoying mm. to go watering trees but, but now, I can, now I can see the impact. Oh, that's mm. a beautiful story. I love that. Mm. How did you how did you end up in the in the world of the arts from there? So you're obviously your dad's a doctor, environmental thinking, wants to, you know, create a beautiful um, a beautiful country town in Wyala. Where does the arts come? Where does that string come from? In your family, was it something that your mother or your family brought brought over with you? Yeah, I think probably. Um, well, both was both my mum and my dad. Yeah. Um, but my mum was very strong about always. Wyala was a thriving town in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a really young town, mm-hmm. and it was booming. A lot of you know, everyone had a job. Yeah. There was a lot of money, even though it was a very working class town. But mm-hmm. there was a lot of money. Everyone was spending money, everyone was earning money and they'd built this amazing theatre there and they had a lot of um, touring acts would would be like Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Wyala, the international touring acts, Wyala was on the map, you know. Yeah, wow. So you'd get like um, a French uh, puppet, like Philippe Gentil would like come to Wyala Mm. and we'd go to that and Billy Connolly would come to on his (laughs) tour and he'd go to Wyala and um, and then of course Cold Chisel, Sherba, all the bands were there too. So we were at everything Mm. all my life where that was just we mum was always taking us to every cultural thing and always bring us down to Adelaide for the Fringe and the Festival as well when we were young and um 
Yeah, so I guess that was my my mum's influence mainly, but but my dad as well um, in lots of other cultural stuff. But my mum mainly in terms of theatre and performance and making sure that we got to go and see a lot of live shows. Just a quick note, this episode is brought to you by Synergy IQ, leaders in enabling change. Synergy IQ are the ones you call when the change or challenge seems so complex and you don't know where to start. But more importantly, we're the ones you call when you want to make a change that will actually last. If you want to check them out, it's at synergyiq.com.au. Mm. Now, so you get into the docu- um, in the documentary world, you, you study in that space, the film, film world. You've created a documentary on your father, haven't you? Is yeah, that correct? Yeah. That was called Your Old your, Father. Your old, your old Your Old Father, which is like a Scottish word for father. father That's yeah. how he My dad used to write a lot of letters. So we I went to boarding school yeah. and he'd write to us almost almost every day. Every couple of days we'd get a letter. It was almost like the diary of dad's day. Yeah, and wow. he was a fantastic writer and um very funny. And so I he would often sign his letters off your old father. That was his um, way of signing off. So I'm, I filmed with my dad a lot over, his, over my studies and I'd often use him as my character yeah. for things. So I had a lot of old footage of dad and then as he was getting near the end of his life, you know, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So we were gi- given a few months with him to to live mm. and um so at the time I was living in England I was running a film festival in England mm-hmm. and I came home to help mum and I sort of came home thinking oh it was three months to live he'll probably be lying down in bed or something but no he was watering trees every day mm. with buckets and even when he was like frail and dying he was still doing that and so I just went back into that rhythm of like mm. watering trees with him mm. even though it was 40 years later. It was really quite um, amazing experience. And so I started to film on just anything on my phone, um, you know, just like I didn't have yeah. proper camera people with me or anything. But And then one, one time I sort of got him to agree that we could bring a camera person in and do some interviews but most of it was just me filmed running after him, you know, with him. Yeah. Like sort of just fly on the wall camera. That's amazing. And then. Did he um, ever get to see it? No. So oh. he would, I don't know, I think he would be, because he kept on thinking, <laughs> what are you filming that for? What are you doing? <laughs> he would He would have been probably horrified that so many people ended up seeing the film yeah. and it's been at film festivals all over the world and it won the audience award in the Adelaide Film Festival so and. They had to keep putting more and more shows on because it was selling out. He would have just thought, why do people want to watch that? Yeah. <laughs> but he was a fantastic, um, he really was an amazing character mm. and he was funny but he was just beautiful and people loved being in his company in the mm. cinema for an hour yeah. and his wisdom and his humour and and we talk, we, and obviously I'm filming him with his trees and, um, and then I had a, friend of mine who I studied at film school with and he animated a lot of the early days my childhood yeah. when we didn't have footage and so there's um it's an environmental film but it's also a film about looking after someone whose days are numbered like mm. I mean I think that was partly why so many people connected with the film and loved it because so many people have looked after their grandparents or parents when they're dying and there's something um uh, 
there's a sort of quiet dignity about people who know their days are numbered. Mm. And my dad really had that. Like he wasn't panicking about dying or anything but he, and he was um, sharing so much love and wisdom, um, you know, and it was you could really see that on the camera. Mm. And I think people related to that because mm. they thought, oh, that was what was my grandma was like or mm. my auntie when I looked after her. And um, and so, yeah, we I film with him right till the, he dies basically and his funeral. And um, so it's a story of a, a man who tro- he trod very lightly on the planet. He was a very environmental person before the green movement mm. or anything like that. Yeah. And he was uh, quite obsessive about water, like recycling things to yeah. a point that it was a bit weird. Um, and um, so he trod lightly on the earth and then, you know, the end of the film he's back, going back to into the earth. And so it was really powerful time. Beautiful story. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a journal. I journal. I write uh, my own thoughts down. And you said you'd. Father wrote letters. Mm. What was the context of those letters? They were just um, his what what he's been doing mm. that day, but also um, just him commenting on um, anything around the world. Sometimes political, um, sometimes just his um, like what's been going on at work. Yeah. But he was very funny. Mm. I mean, he was. A Glaswegian, yeah. hilarious, but like he had that humour, and um, he used to write to me, my sister, and all the nurses. After he died, I met a lot of his nurses he worked with, and they said that he used to write enormous patient notes that were just amazing and sometimes really funny, and like the whole life story of the patient that he got, and then he wrote it down. They said, "Oh, they used to always want to collect them as a book yeah, because they wow. said they were so funny and so amazing." So very, he, very he, stoic, isn't it? Like it's he a, wrote a lot, yeah. mm. and then he also wrote endless letters to politicians. Okay. <laughs> so I found a lot of them because yeah. his um, secretary used to type the letters for him as a doctor, yeah. And then he would dictate these letters to premiers, you know, <laughs> South Australian premiers in the eighties and stuff, and he would write to them saying that they should set up solar farms in Wyala and. Uh, wind farms and things. I mean, this is like, you know, in 1982. Yeah, that's right. That's amazing. (laughs) And he was like, you know, Wyala is a perfect place for a wind farm and if you would, you know, and he was always having a dig at, he thought premiers of South Australia only cared about Adelaide. Yeah. He used to say things like, if you ever came to Wyala, you'd be the first premier to even notice that we exist or, you know, I mean, always sort of having a dig but... um, yeah, it was a prolific writer. Yeah, mm. I love it. You must be very proud. Yeah, it was um, – well, I loved the response. I couldn't believe the response when people saw the mm. film and then they were like, oh, we just loved – you know, we felt like we got to know him and, we, you know, what a great sort of person, what a great mm. legacy that he left. Yeah, I love it. So you then – so you like you, during that you mentioned that you were on uh, you were in England and you were running a conference festival festival yeah. over Film there festival festival was yeah. that the Sheffield, uh, Sheffield Doc? So you're CEO yeah. of yeah. So tell us about that role and how you transitioned into that world. So the 
So the Sheffield, I mean, British documentary is, I mean, Britain is the centre of documentary mm-hmm. in the world, right? Yeah, David so, Attenborough, is it? You know, okay. it's David Attenborough, <laughs> you know, Louis Theroux, that's mm-hmm. just everybody, Michael Palin. And so you you just have the BBC and Channel 4, but BBC has been um, just an incredible generator of the best documentaries in the world. Yeah. And so it is the epicentre and... So there was a documentary festival in England which was really like the gathering of the British documentary industry every year. And um, the chairman of that was Steve Hewlett who was a big media mover and shaker. He was head of certain television channels over his time and um, and worked at the BBC and other places. And he was the chair of Sheffield DocFest and he came to the documentary festival that I was running in Australia and on the final night at the party, he said, look, we really need a new director and CEO to come to Sheffield and shake it up into an international festival because it's a gathering of the British docs, yeah. but we need the world mm. there now because now the world was changing. It was all about co-productions. Yep. It was all about working across countries and, and so on. And that was my... I guess that was identified as my skill set because I'd created this meat market which was all about the international co-production world and so on. So I I went over, I I flew to England a few days later and and met the board and then they offered me the job and and I moved to England like within a few weeks because I was born there so I have a passport. Yeah. So there was no, uh, I was just like it was really fast, right? And so... Um, I um, I took up the role at Sheffield Dockfest, and it it was in a bit of a state. It was in a moribund kind of state. Yeah. It was on the way down. It had really been um, becoming flagging. You know, it wasn't really thriving, and so it needed a massive turnaround and a real injection. And we 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 did turn it around, and we turned it into one of the absolute best documentary festivals in the world. We were right up regarded with Sundance, Tribeca. We were, you know, pit, all the industry used to descend on Sheffield, yeah. which, you know, is is quite a feat to get the world to come to Sheffield. I yeah. mean, <laughs> speaking of Wyala and Steel yeah. Towns, it's a bit like um, without the beach. And so, <laughs> you know, it was... Um, we we but we had so much fun and then we we set up a roller disco as a little one of our fun because what we one most commissioning editors grew up in in those days that era when I was doing Sheffield most of those commissioning editors grew up in the seventies when it was all roller skating yeah. and so we brought back think fun discos and roller discos and things. And it was so funny seeing some of the most senior television executives <laughs> in the world roller skating at a roller disco. It was, oh. uh, but not you know we we played hard at night, but we also worked hard yeah. in the day. So we we created a marketplace which we called the meat market again. Mm. So we took the yep. meat market to Sheffield. Yep. It became enormous. It was funded by the EU, funded by the British Film Institute. I mean, ev- all the big guns got behind it. We. Um, created a marketplace that generated tens of millions um, of pounds worth of deals every year. And so we had hundreds of commissioning editors from television, investors, Mm. um, distributors, everybody from the film world was there. And it was quite amazing because Sheffield's, you know, it's quite a small city centre, even though it sprawls out into the hills and so on. But in the city centre, 
and it was a true takeover. Mm. I mean, we just took over the town and it's an it's a really beautiful town and it's something that people don't realize Sheffield's actually really yeah. beautiful. So when they get there they're like, "Oh, this is a beautiful town. I thought it was a going to be an old yeah, yeah. run-down steel town. It's actually really beautiful." And so I I ran that for 10 years and it just was on an exponential e-curve growth mm. every single year that I was there. What mm. did you what did you do in regard like you said you got all these investors in all these all this interest in you you grew it you uh, and and turned it into what yeah. was you know an iconic event what does that look like what, what, when you walk in through the door as day one of CEO what did it look like and then what was your vision like how does it how do you turn something around mm-hmm. with that much impact and I, you know we're obviously seeing the same thing you're doing here with the Adelaide Fringe but. It'd be, I'm really interested in to just understanding your thought process into turning something like that around. Well, when I arrived at Sheffield um, and I uh, asked the finance uh, head of finance, so what's the state of our finances right now? And they said they had £20,000 in the bank and that was it. And they'd mm. lost almost all their sponsors and they'd yeah. become a sort of like it was it, people weren't really intending to register this year because it just had been sort of died. It had fallen off the cliff and forgotten to reinvent itself to be relevant to the new industry of, yeah. And so I was, like, quite shocked because, whoa, I didn't realise it was quite that bad. Um, But I I thought, okay, well, my my approach is mainly I always want to go into um, understand everybody's, what, what are people's experience and what do they expect their experience to be? So whether they're the filmmakers that we need to, to come and register as delegates or whether they're the decision makers, the investors, we want them to come and see that the market is worth attending. Yep. And so I literally went out and just met hundreds of people and listened to what they want and why don't they want to come anymore, what's the problems, what would, they, what would make them come, what's the change they need to see. Mm-hmm. So just all that stuff about... Um, understanding stakeholder needs and expectations and what's not being met, what's the, you know, what's the worst thing that is happening right now that I can change and I can fix. And so um, we just what, what opportunities do you want me to create? What's mm. described to me an ideal world of what you want from a great documentary festival? And people want connection. They want to meet the people they need to meet. They don't want to meet all the people. Like if this is a – if I'm buying science shows – in you know for for PBS in America, I don't want to come and meet everyone pitching to me about art art documentaries yeah. and things. So I need some sophisticated sort of matchmaking done yep. in and all that sort of stuff. So we we and and we we made that happen. We we created yeah. a very um, uh, bespoke experience for all the different people in the different genres of documentary. But even though we were servicing all the different genres, but everyone felt like they were getting the really special yeah. experience. Isn't that amazing, right? So we're a company that specialises in organisational change and, and as you can imagine within that is uh, um, stakeholder engagement, communications and, and it's the same thing across all industries. It's not just in the arts and film in- industry. It's people want connection. They want to understand it. well, it's the what's in it for me. How, how is this going to impact me and my work and, yeah. and my community and our customer and all the above. So It's every every industry yeah. is the same thing. I mean I'm currently studying at MIT. Um, I'm doing a course in exactly around, you know, 
business growth, innovation and yeah. things like that. So it's all about that again. Mm. And this is what I've been doing and have generated amazing um, exponential growth both in Sheffield and in Adelaide Fringe over the years. But now I'm really understanding even more about that deeper surveying, deeper engagement, mm. understanding um, much more about the user journeys. I mean, when I first, I remember when I first came to both Sheffield and Adelaide, and I talk a lot about to the staff about let's paint a persona of typical customers. Like yeah. let's paint a typical artist customer, a typical um, venue, a typical ticket buyer. Yeah. You know, yeah. and some I think it was a new model for a lot of the staff that hadn't really done that before in festivals, mm-hmm. but now. We just use those personas. We, we refer to those personas all the time. Yeah. What would Harry want us to do? Like Harry wants – and so our aim was always to make um, – I mean both in Sheffield and, and in Adelaide, I was always um, driving big di- digital transformation. Yeah, so brilliant. bringing in new digital platforms for how people bought tickets, how people engaged in the event and so on and trying to – draw a seamless user journey that didn't have like any speed humps, any roadblocks, let's get rid of them. What's making people hesitate when they come on? Why aren't they buying a ticket? Or And so to make um, – we can't do that unless we get in the head of the personas, yeah. the typical customers, and then, like, you know, step, step in their shoes because when you're on the inside creating something, creating a festival program or whatever it is that your business is doing – um, if you don't say, well, I'm going to be the grumpy customer, <laughs> yeah. you know, you can assume Correct. that's the problem that you make assumptions that people are just going to smoothly sail through this ticket buying purchase journey yep. and they don't. And if you don't listen to, I always say to my staff, like, well, if there's complaints, they're actually like, don't take them personally, like write them down and we'll, like, that's a great problem for us to solve you know, for when we do our planning for next year, what, yeah. what's what's the most common thing that people are ringing up that's stopping them to buy the yeah, ticket? Or, yeah, brilliant. Mm. So I love that. I love the idea of of really working towards what the people want, and uh, and and you know, I think there's a there's a lot of um, organisations, businesses, leaders who really set out to create really amazing product, but actually don't deep dive enough into like you said, the user experience—it's—it's it's exactly it's paramount to the success of any of any organisation. And so, kudos for you for picking that up. What, what happened then? Did, did you see? I mean, you mentioned earlier it turned into this um, this amazing event. I want to interested to hear your growth as a, you become a CEO. Do you become more confident in yourself? Do you become more confident in your abilities? Um, you know, it was your first CEO gig. So, how did you deal with all the emotions? whilst just trying to connect with people, which is really what it, it felt like your main method was, was understand who I'm speaking to and just connect the right people to the right people, isn't it? It's just a yeah. beautiful way of life almost. Yeah, so, yeah, so I mean it was just about – so it was about listening to um, all the different stakeholder groups. And so, for example, filmmakers, they wanted to meet – potential investors in their films. They mm-hmm. wanted to meet potential collaborators and but they also wanted it's quite a lonely documentary making is a very solitary experience mm. and so they also wanted a real party. They want yeah. to get together <laughs> and celebrate with their industry. Absolutely. And so 
I I knew that we had. To, it wasn't just about a business uh, deal. It wasn't just about a business conference. It was about creating a true festival mm. experience that people loved and had a great time at. But when they left, they had a potential deal in their um, pocket. They had met a new producer they were going to work with, and so we when we start when Sheffield started really immediately from the first year, and I think. Um, the Brits, you know, they the Brits really like um, wild times, eccentric yeah. people, <laughs> outspoken opinions, and and so Doesn't my everyone, chair. <laughs> well, I think I think um, it's it, it a bit a bit more so Probably, in Britain yeah, actually. Yeah. If you go to Britain, there can be go to <laughs> festivals and stuff. There's always great eccentric elements to them, and and there's uh, just a real eccentricity around Britain anyway. But my chairman said to me, like, Heather, don't you don't have to hold back here. Like mm. you can just push the boat out and make mm. this as make this festival as wild as you want and as fun as you want. And that was like a, a freedom that he you know, he yeah. gave me that as a he didn't just say, Oh, you know, we wanna impre- we need to look after the the corporates or yeah. anything like that. He said, let's take the corporates and make them, yeah. you know, push the boundaries and, you know, so yeah. that was really a liberating thing that, and and I was so lucky to have Steve as a chair yeah. for 10 years um, in Sheffield because I got to learn to grow as mm. and not and not come from a point of fear and, and come from a let's take lots of risks. Yeah, and explore. And, isn't that what and the it's arts okay in- to take lots of risks yeah. and sometimes they don't work but mm. you know luckily we ours seem to be working and people just were were blown away about what a great you know what a great experience they had. Well, isn't that what the art industry is about? The arts industry is, uh, is about the exploration. Yeah. It's not living within the confined boundary. Well, it is, but you know, it's interesting how often you see even in arts and festivals that people almost do a sausage factory sort yeah, of repeat, okay. repeat. And, yeah, and, stick and within the lines. Stick, is that yeah, there? and it's like, well, this has always worked. I'm a real believer that what got us here isn't going to get us to yeah. the next bit. So what got us here is fantastic and we're standing on the shoulders of giants and yeah. great things. But let's, like, we can, if we stay so stationary, we're going to go down. So we what's the... Um, you know, the there's that S curve yep. theory with the business of yeah. you know you can be on the up growth, but if you're not innovating and creating your next S curve, yeah. you know you can drop down, and that you see that. Um, I mean, speaking from a festival point of view, you do see that. You see festivals that either have that great growth and then they drop down, mm. or they just plateau and they just sort of do a bit of a rinse and repeat sort of style. Yeah. Um, Whereas I'm always saying, right, what are we going to do next? Sort of, we um, had a massive digital transition and transformation in Sheffield with a whole new digital platform. We did the same thing here. Um, it, we we're always looking at, like, for example, bringing in interactive as a genre, bringing in the intersection of art and technology and immersive shows. Yeah. As it, that was when I did that in Sheffield. People were like, "What's that got to do with the film industry?" You know, yeah. this is like two thousand and four. It was like this is now you couldn't find a film festival that doesn't have interactive mm. now, but that's eighteen years yeah. later. But you know, it, it was very early days in terms of that interdisciplinary yep. um, bringing code. We I used to bring uh, coders and games designers in and put them in the program and things like that, and 
there were some traditional film people who were like, well, hang on, this is a film yeah. festival. It's like, no, this is about screen industry. And yeah, these, okay. we, you know, and then in. Um, so you're a visionary, really, in this, in, in this space, from like being able to see for the future. There's just no difference to your dad with the trees, right? Mm. Like you're being able to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I think I just was. I was lucky in the oh, because I'm curious and because I like meeting people. I was always really interested in meeting people that are on the forefront of things mm. and early adopters. I I met um, some really inspiring people in the beginning of um, the '90s who were doing some really great stuff around the internet. Yeah, and um, I met them in Banff. And I also met some in Adelaide and those people had a big influence on me. Like I was like, wow, this is this slow dial-up um, thing that was – but we were like we could make things but of course we couldn't because yeah. the slow dial-up yeah, couldn't yeah. even do text but we thought we can have like – The idea a, of Yeah, it. but the, we could see the idea of it yeah. and we – I worked with this um, fantastic guy in, um, in Canada who sadly passed away now but Peter Wintonic and together between Australia and Canada – we set up things in the 90s of um, we called them DigiDocs and DigiFest and all this. We, we were trying to create virtual film festival yeah. we did. Um, so we were trying to create things in the, in, in, the, in the sort of intersection of technology and film but when, uh, before anything could really happen. Um, but that influenced me forever. And um, it, when I first came to the Adelaide Fringe, eight years ago, I introduced a new genre called interactive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's going so well. I mean, now we've got some of the most incredible shows of these artists who are like coders working with dancers, mm. working with big screen. Like, I mean, and they're making these immersive shows mm. um, that I, I have no doubt are going to get picked up in the marketplace and go touring the world yeah. because they're so cutting edge and so fantastic. But it was driven by us setting, you know, let's get, let's give them a home, let's give them a genre, and see what happens yeah. within the within the mix of the fringe. It's opening the door, isn't it? Really, we're having a. Um, I've got this fantastic uh, group that come here from Britain, actually, the Electric Dreams people. Yeah, an Electric Dreams conference has been happening in a, for a few years now in the Adelaide Fringe, and it's on February the twentieth. So it's one day only the conference, but they've got a lot of other shows as well. And there's like an amazing, the head of the Games Network in Scotland is the keynote yep. speaker and he's got some fantastic stuff to talk. He talks about how games are going to be ubiquitous in every industry in the not-too-distant future where the, the games developers are going to be required in every field yep. because it is how we like the how we experience health or mm. anything is they're going to require games developers. Gamification and, of it, yeah. And gamification is, you know, coming at us very quickly. And um, oh, You can introduce me. We'll get him on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> you should get him for sure. Yeah. He'll be great, Brian Baglow, and he's the head of the Scottish Games Network and he's just amazing, very inspiring speaker. But he talks about that um, in, in some ways a bit like what we were saying before, user journeys, a lot of that user journey mapping mm has come from um, that, that industry. Games, it's yeah. come from the gaming industry. Yep. It's come from the web, website, uh, internet, sort of, you know, Silicon yep. Valley. 
that's where I guess I learnt a lot of that stuff mm. was by um, working alongside a lot of techie people. And, you know, in, in the 90s when I was working at the Star Club and then I happily, so coincidental and fantastically, met these early adopters of the internet yeah. who really changed my way of thinking. And so I had these three streams going. I was doing filmmaking, I was working at the Fringe, but I also was being influenced by these people in technology. And those three lanes are sort of, I'm still in those three lanes, but I'm in them in a different way now and trying to um, bring more people in. I mean, I'm always about everybody's invited and everybody should be involved in that. I'm not an exclusive I'm not very interested in exclusivity at all. I'm not interested in VIP this or that and this much, like you're curated, yeah. you're in and you're yeah. out. So we, I'm very much about everybody's can be involved. You know, anyone who wants to put a show on, I love that about the Adelaide Fringe yeah. has always been inclusive like that. Yeah. But it's to me it's like that bringing in the technology, bringing in the, the designers in that, that sort of games area and the web area um, is doesn't seem odd to me at all. It just seems like, well, aren't we all going to yeah. innovate yeah. when we get together? Mm. Um, yeah, I'm a closet gamer. I, I do play a bit of a few games. <laughs> oh, you'll and, love the Electric oh, so, Dreams. Yeah, <laughs> so for me, the um, the uh, that gaming world. I'm, I've actually been speaking to a few people about the gamification of business and how you can bring it into mm. a consulting world. It's just something that's yeah of, of interest to me. I'm mucking around with that concept in the background. But Great. kudos to all your great work in the Doc Fest. It was named by the Variety magazine as the Premier League of the Doc Fest. So well done. You did extremely well there. I'm now interested in your journey towards the Adelaide Fringe and becoming the CEO. Uh, being a South Australian boy through and through, grew up in the state, I've seen the growth and rise of the of the Adelaide Fringe and it's actually something that as a South Australian I feel very proud of as a, as a state that we're putting on something that's so amazing. And as you were talking there, I couldn't quite put my finger on it over the past couple of years and obviously COVID obviously ruined some things here and there and everywhere but – what you said in regards to what you did with the Doc Fest, how you made it this community thing, like you made it this, you, you engulf the state or you engulf Sheffield, I should say. Yeah. I feel you're doing the same thing here, right? Where I feel engulfed. I feel like I'm just, I'm getting swarmed, I'm pick, getting picked up and taken on this ride. And it's wonderful. It's mm. wonderful. So kudos. So uh, can we start back at the start? 2015, you've uh, you've joined the Fringe. Um, and just so for everyone to understand, it's not just called the Adelaide Fringe Festival. The Fringe Festival is a type of festival. Can you just mm. draw on your understanding of what yeah. is a Fringe Festival yeah. and then what is this actually supposed to do yeah. and then how we then uh, how we then grew it in your career at the Fringe? Yeah. So, well, the Adelaide Fringe is um, an open access festival which means that anybody can put on a show and – Edinburgh Fringe is also an access, open access yep. festival where anyone can put on a show. There are hundreds of festivals in the world that call themselves a fringe but they don't often um, embrace the open access. They still yeah, do okay. curation but there's still there's still quite a few open access fringe festivals around but the word fringe has 
morphed into just sort of almost meaning festival now because yeah, hundreds of fringes are not actually open access. Yeah. But the reason it was called Fringe in Edinburgh and Adelaide is that Adelaide and Edinburgh have um, had major international arts festivals. In the in in Edinburgh's case, it was in the mid forties that it started, and in Adelaide, it was nineteen sixty. So major arts festival began, but it was a curated festival where they invite a ballet from Russia and an mm-hmm. opera mm-hmm. from Germany, and yep. you know that, and and then. They that was a very um, top down curated invite only style festival, and then local artists both in this happened both in Edinburgh and Adelaide very sort of mirror image experience. Um, local artists were like, well, how can we be involved in the festival? And they were like, well, this is a festival of international. Sh- we're inviting international shows that you're yep. not part of the yep. program. Yep. Um, and so the artists said, okay. Well, we're going to start something on the fringe of the festival. So that's what we're going to start, the fringe. And so they, you know, very brave artists in the 60s, uh, putting on theatre shows in the Adelaide Uni, putting on um, visual art exhibitions, you know, all sorts of um, things. And it it has always been there. The fringe has always been there along the side of the festival. So... The, op- the open access nature of it was how it was born mm-hmm. and we are very strong that that's how it will remain. Right. We, you know, we we don't have any uh, targets to grow the number of shows or anything like that. We we certainly have targets around selling more tickets because mm. that helps helps the artists yeah. um, in, their, in their box office. But so we, we've always said anyone can come along. You can put on a show. Anyone can put on a show. Help, we'll help you find a venue, we'll put the show on our ticketing and we'll sell it for you and then we'll give you that whatever money you get. It's yeah. a bit like Airbnb. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you put your house on Airbnb and no one books it, no, you don't get you any don't get money. Paid, yeah. if, if people book it, you get paid. Yeah. It's the same. So we have um, in the 60s the fringe, you know, really just these brave artists putting on uh, shows here and there, whatever they can eke out. And then in the 70s it really becomes a bit more formalised and Don Dunstan um, yep. was instrumental, former, former premier, and, yep. yeah, former premier, and then in um, in the late seventies, early eighties, it really um, cemented with getting a board, getting a chair, yep. started to become really a, a significant size, and then around the nineties, um, we start to see a, a lot of. Um, Cabaret and comedy, people that have gone on to be big names in Australian television and so on, but they really um, saw Adelaide Fringe as the launch pad mm. for their career. They they thought it's a great town, to great city to come and test um, their new shows. Test your content, and, yep. And so we were – and in those days, Adelaide Fringe is in the early 90s selling around about 100,000 tickets um, per season. That's a lot of tickets, especially for the 90s, but um, some really successful arts festivals in Australia sell around about 50,000 tickets, yeah. right? So that, that's really healthy ticket mm. sales. So if you think that the scale of Adelaide Fringe is something to behold, mm. when even in the 90s we were selling 100,000 tickets, that's so impressive. Mm. And it meant that people just were coming out from everywhere, every demographic. The the age range of the fringe audience has always been extremely wide. Yeah. And, and so it's very, as you say, Adelaide people are very proud of it. 
They feel ownership of it. And um, when um, I think when people from Adelaide go elsewhere and they go, oh, so where's your Fringe Festival? And they realise, no, not every city no, has yeah, something yeah. like this. <laughs> There's only one or two cities in the world yeah, that, that have a festival that truly transforms the, the whole place. And so then as we're coming up through 2015, selling around about 400,000, 500,000 tickets and then that's when I take on the, took on the role of CEO. Yep. And I was, um, um, you know, I did brought all a lot of my typical sort of approaches to under, let's look at what we can do, let's understand what the artists want, what are the problems, what are the things we need to fix for them, what are the venues. The digital piece as well. All, yeah. Exactly. What's all the um, uh, challenges for buying tickets, what's all the um, – Anything? What can we What can we do in our S curve? Mm. What, what's our new innovation? What's mm. our next S curve going to be? And so, over the next few years, we, we brought in a whole new ticketing system, a whole new digital registration platform for the artists, and so on. And the meat market model is like we we call it the honeypot. Yep. But that is um absolutely was absolutely instrumental as well. So now we have in our marketplace. In the Honeypot Marketplace, we attract about 300 programmers from all over the world, from Soho Theatre in London to the Lincoln Centre in New York to festivals in Germany, Singapore, Malaysia, everyone. And they come here to find new talent and new shows to book for the future, yeah. for touring. So, again, that means that the artists, not only are they doing it because they're going to try and make some box office and try some new shows on audience, but they're also hoping to get picked up for touring. Yeah. And we even have like America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, yeah, Australia's wow. Got Talent. They're sitting in the audience. You never know who's sitting next to you. Yeah, Adelaide Fridge. Wow. Uh, cruise ships That's are there weird. finding shows. And then theatres are there. So so theatres are there looking for some really unusual creative plays. Yeah. And then the cruise ships are there looking for the most populous kind of wild cabaret yeah. Yeah, drag yeah. shows. I mean – Everyone's looking for something different, mm. and that's the beauty because Adelaide Fringe has got something it's different. And so, um, in my first four or five years, we had twenty percent, so double digit percentage growth on ticket sales every single year um, until we got after after um, after sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. So um, on my fifth year, we sold eight hundred and fifty thousand tickets, and I started it. Sort of four hundred yeah, so something. Yeah, doubled the size. And that's when COVID came, yeah. just right at the end of of Fringe twenty twenty. And but you know, bizarrely and thankfully, it, we were still able. We're one of the only festivals in the world that didn't miss a, a, an edition. Yeah. We didn't miss a year ever. And the restrictions opened and closed, opened and closed, and air, the borders opened. The 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 lock. Like sort of the the stay at home, the whether or not you can yeah. operate, but every time in twenty one and twenty two, every time we were so lucky that restrictions opened enough that we could run the fringe, yeah. and we sold seven hundred thousand tickets in each of those years, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, even in the pandemic, and we could only sell every second seat, mm. so everyone had to have a seat between them. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, yeah I remember. Yeah. I went to a few shows. Yeah. Uh, it was actually quite nice because I'm a big guy, so <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I get <laughs> so sometimes I get squashed in. So, so just on that, like the you know, 
fingers crossed this year we crack the million ticket sales, well, right? I think like, so. I, I mean, we're gonna uh, we're on the way right now. We're tracking around about ten percent ahead of where we were in twenty twenty. Yeah, so there there mm. we have it. So yeah. you're at uh, eighty nine hundred, almost around nine hundred. So we could if we can get over the. The Over the million dollar mark, mm. that that'll be uh, that'll be amazing. Well, a million tickets. So million twenty. Ti- sorry, 20, million tickets. Yeah. I should say. Yeah. We do about twenty four. We'll do a, probably do twenty four million dollars at the box office. I think. Yeah. Or maybe twenty five million, but. But yeah, it's and they, that gets paid out to the artist, oh, and that, that's a massive that's injection. Huge. But it's, what, the injections in South Australia, I read last, I think I read some statistics, it brings in 50 million of new money. Tourism. Yeah, yeah. of new and money a hundred, to the a hundred, state. $100 million of gross economic uh, injection. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's absolutely brilliant. But what's, is there a limit to the, so to put in context, the Edinburgh is the, the biggest number one and sells mm. two, $2.2 million, two, $2.2 million tickets, I should mm. say, per event. Is that within reach? Like is that or is that yeah, just – can, can Adelaide accommodate for something yeah, like that? Yeah, 100%. So Edinburgh is um, – Edinburgh has about 3,000 events mm-hmm. um, and they sell around about 20% of their ticket inventory. So some – Sell 100%, some yep. sell 5%, yep. right? Yep. We have around about 1,000 events and yep. we've had around about 1,000 events for a long time, mm-hmm. probably 10 or so years. Yep. Um, sometimes it's 1,100, 1,200. We don't, we don't have any targets of growth around the number of events in the, in the festival. But what we have is a target of our growth in tickets. Mm. So we now sell 42% of the ticket inventory which is actually a lot better than Edinburgh is about 20% yep. of the ticket inventory yep. that they sell. So that's much better news for the artists here because more bums on seats, they're getting better box office back for yep. them. Yep. And we know that um, we we attract around about 30,000 tourists a year now. When I arrived it was about 10,000. Mm-hmm. So we are aiming to get more like 60,000 tourists or 80,000 tourists and if we can get up to that and, you know, the hotel, it's fantastic because all the new hotels have yeah, been built. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely occupancy City, everyone running, running, available. The, the Crown, all mm. the above, yeah. And so if we can get our tourism numbers up because the fringe happens over 31 days and nights. Mm. Most tourists coming for four days, three days, something like that. They're not all coming all at once and but they spread out over the month. And if we can get up to 60,000, 80,000 tourists – will buy more tickets than someone like people who Because they want to do more when they're here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they don't have to go to work yeah. nine to five. So yeah, there's more true. daytime jobs, more daytime, daytime shows. shows yeah. And so tourists are, you know, might buy six or seven tickets while they're here. Adelaide uh, fringe guys are buying about four three to four. So, you know, this is we've got big growth potential in because we've, we've we're selling forty two percent of the ticket inventory at the moment, yeah. And if we can get that up to about sixty percent of the ticket inventory, which is amazing, yeah. Most festivals are selling you know half of their inventory. It's not a you know you don't just sell a hundred percent of your inventory. Yeah, I mean you no. know that'd be a dream, yeah. but you don't. Um, if we can get more tourists up, and the thing is that we can guarantee that tourists are going to have an amazing time. Yeah. You cannot have a bad time at the Adelaide Fringe. It's just like there's there's beautiful yeah. uh, weather that's out, out under the starry skies, lovely balmy nights, there's great theatre, there's great circus, oh. there's cabaret. If you want something quiet and 
um, orchestral, there's that. If you want something really wild and yeah. um, late night uh, uh, drag show, there's yeah. that. Yeah. So there's something for absolutely everyone. everyone. And the the town just comes alive. Mm. If you if you come to Adelaide any other time of year after you've been to Fringe, what's happened? Yes. Where's, <laughs> where's it all gone? Yeah. So, you know, because of all the Spiegel tents and all the tents oh, and everything yeah. that pop up. Just even the, the roads opening and, like you said, on mm. a balmy night sitting out on Rundle Street having a wine, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. You, One thing we spoke about last time uh, was there's a lot about the Fringe that's – not public facing that people mm. don't actually know about it. Can you give us a little bit of a you know sneak peek to behind the scenes? What yeah. does it look like? Is it is it the duck on water sort of thing? You know, yeah. nice and calm on the top, but the legs are sort of scrambling underneath. What, oh. what does it look like behind the scenes? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we are all ducks floating along, but really madly flapping underneath. Yeah. Um. So uh, the fringe has four hundred venues, and so there's all those venues mm. that have um you know. On any day during Fringe, there'll be north of eight, nine, ten thousand people employed for in in those in those venues, yeah. running the venues like you know running the Garden of Unearthly mm-hmm. Delights, running Gluttony, running the venues in the in the Victoria Square or Highmarsh Square, yeah, and then all the bricks and mortar theatres and pubs and so all it's amazing what's going on and how many people it takes to make the Fringe happen, and then there's six thousand artists so. Around um, 25% are interstate, about 20% uh, from overseas and 55% from South Australia. Mm -hmm. So we've got probably, I mean, right now I think we're, I think at the moment we've got about 1,000 visas done for the international artists that are coming in. Yeah. So and that's just, you know, it's just So a, you help them through that whole process. We well, you know, we we get guide them to them. do they do it themselves but yeah. we guide them oh, and help yeah. them. Yeah. And so we know we we uh, we know that there's north of a thousand visas getting done just for the artists alone. And so this is uh the scale that I'm sort of like it's just hard to even imagine, yeah. you know, 6000 artists descending on a town and turning it into such a festival playground yeah. and so public facing you see all the razzmatazz yeah you know you see all the fun and the glitter and the sequence and yeah. and and the arts but behind the scenes the artists are working so hard to sell their tickets they've got to sell their tickets no one's paying them mm. to be on the stage so they've you know they're they're, they're doing the hustle they're out on the streets mm. giving out their flyers and then they're also getting meetings with all these people that we've brought in for the marketplace. Mm. And we have um, people from 27 different countries coming in to discover new shows, to book them, you know. And so that's what that's what the artists are trying to, I think I was saying before about the show business. It's mm. like there's the show but there's also the business. Yeah. And so the artists learn a lot in the fringe. They learn how to be a producer. They learn how to make the business side of their, of their career work. Yeah. And so... Um, the ones who really nail that do very, very well. Mm. And it isn't just the most um, sort of commercial and populist shows that sell the best. There are actually a lot of really innovative and yeah. experimental and new work that sell well, but it's it's just down to whether or not they've really worked out how to help get those tickets sold. Yeah. Things like, I mean, social media now plays a massive role. Huge. 
And so all the artists are learning how to do their own socials. Yeah. They're learning how to make the most of every um, – get word of mouth out to, yeah. to spread the word. And um, they're all hoping that – not all of them because some artists – some artists in Fringe are doing a show for fun. Mm. But a lot of them are doing it because it's their career and their mm. livelihood. And they're really hoping that that – the, the director from the festival in Singapore is talking to the festival director in Canada and Malaysia and France and whatever and suddenly out of Adelaide Fringe yeah. they've got an 18-month world tour yeah. and that literally is a reality that happens. And often you'll see things in Sydney Opera House a year after being in Adelaide Fringe and the ticket price is triple and, you know, so Adelaide Fringe tickets are very affordable. Yeah. You know, the average ticket price is around $34. Yep. And so you'll um, you will see things first here. Yeah, and great. then when you see them interstate and having a great run and in Brisbane and, and uh, Melbourne and over in London, yeah. I mean, our fringe ambassador, Ruben Kay from last year, he just won a major award last night in London yeah, wow. and he'll be coming back again this year. I mean, we watch our... We watch the Adelaide Fringe artists absolutely thrive on the national and international scene after they've done yeah. their season. Is there is there like a story, you talk about Ruben, is there a story that sticks out with you that you go, I am so proud that mm. I was involved in the growth of this act or person? Um, there's so many. <laughs> I mean so many great stories out of um, the marketplace as well. So a South Australian great success story is Gravity and Other Myths Mm -hmm. who are a fantastic circus. They come out of the circus school circuits and then they put on a show in the Adelaide Fringe and uh, really nailed it in the marketplace. They got booked for years of touring uh, to the point that they had to have a, a number of troops they had one troop over in Europe, one troop in America, <laughs> one troop in Australia touring, incredible deals. And then they got commissioned by a, a joint commission by the Edinburgh Festival and the Adelaide Festival. And they actually opened the Adelaide Festival last year to um, tens of thousands of uh, people in the audience at the Adelaide Oval. And that is an incredible success story of a South Australian um, act that knew how to, you know, really do well in the ticket sales in Adelaide Fringe but behind the scenes mm. they also did really well in the marketplace. And another one is Michaela Berger, um, Amelia Ryan, Michael Griffiths. They're just fantastic cabaret stars from South Australia who have gone touring the world after Adelaide Fringe. And they've actually done that. A lot of their individual shows have been huge hits and this year they've actually joined forces, the three of them, and they're putting on a show called Simply Brill, which um, is a wonderful show. And uh, it was commissioned by the Adelaide Cabaret Festival earlier this year. They did a, their pilot run there and now they're doing it in Fringe. That's, uh, it's brilliant. And, and I think that's what's the most exciting thing. When I think about, um, when I think about the Adelaide Fringe and what you're talking about here, I don't know, my mind goes to football, you know, like an AFL camp, all the young talent of the world, you know, in, in Australia go to one thing with all the scouts coming in to look at them. It's almost that that appeal and it's really exciting. Simply Brill, I'm going to go check them Simply out this Brill. year. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny that the football, anal- like 
The, the number of tickets that we sell is actually like if you imagine both <clears throat> both Adelaide football teams, Port Adelaide and yeah. the Crows, selling out every single game for the entire season at Adelaide Oval, mm. that's how many tickets Adelaide Fringe is selling. <coughs> yeah, it's and there's, amazing. you know, there's not many arts festivals that can even, you know, can, can get up that, at that sort of like massive stadium <laughs> ticket selling thing. We sell... Um, during fringe, when when as we're rolling out for the month, we sell between twenty thousand and thirty thousand tickets every single day, every single day. So, just an amazing um, uh, thing to think that there's the all that engagement of such enormous numbers of audience, but also there's talent development. There's you know um, launch pad mm. happening for people. So. There's a lot of comparisons that you could make between AFL and Adelaide yeah. Fringe. But in regards to the um, <clears throat> in regards to the comparison, talk about the ticket sales. What about what the Fringe is doing? I mean, I sometimes just go down Rundle Street and have a mule and just get involved in the whole event and don't even mm. buy a ticket, right? Yeah. Like, so it's not only that; it's what it's doing for the state, which is absolutely amazing one thing that i'm gonna i'm really interested in, in and i'm conscious of the, your time so i want to sort of burn through this last bit i've got so many questions i want to ask but one thing that stood out for me there was a quote that you said is that and i quote you on this that the fringe is so important to south australians and you could feel the magical atmosphere of the of the fringe envelop us all in our audience survey says that 93 percent of attendees told us that the adelaide fringe positively impacts their mental health <clears throat> and and so I'm I'm really interested in that statistic alone, because because you talk about benefits to the state and and benefits to human beings. This is having a remarkable impact. What made you want to survey about mental health? And that mm. was something that kind of first through. I mean, actually, such a brilliant question to ask the public. How does this make you feel? Mm. But then secondly, how does that make you feel knowing that you're having such an mm. a positive, you and the team are having such a positive impact on, on so many human beings? Yeah. I know it, it's because um, we're always um, asked to measure economic impact and we're always asked to measure these things because of return on investment that we have to report back to if we get a government grant or a council grant and they want that sort of thing. Mm. But we're really aware that there's other return on investments that are hard, much harder to measure. Yeah. and well, Qualitative. Uh, exactly. And so we were like, well, we and, – and this is a work in progress and this is – we've only just really touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of what how we can measure. There's a lot of work going on and I would say Britain probably leading the way in this area at the moment. But in terms of measuring what a positive impact art can have on people's mental health and – it, it, it um, engaging in art, yes, mm. like being in in the in the arts and and being part of a show. But not only that, but actually just attending and be, you know going yeah. along and experiencing art to the point that now in Britain they are um, prescribing to go to a show is something doctors will do. Yeah, like wow. it's that that's how recognised it's becoming now in Britain that. Um, the work that's been done, there's been so much research around the fact that art can have a, a more positive impact on our mental health than yeah. prescribing drugs and 
we just haven't done very much work in that area. There is a there is a podcast that I listened to recently where there's an expert who he's an expert in awe, A W E awe, mm. right? And he says that just being in awe, so even going for a walk outside and being mm. in awe of your surroundings or the environment. Is it Jake? Who is it? It was this was the Diary of the CEO podcast. Oh right, yeah. I can't remember the name of the. Oh the, no, it's a different guy. But yeah, I was thinking it was yeah. Anyway, but I can't yeah. remember the guy. Who I thought he, it was Jason. Um, Anyway, it might, 100%. yeah, I remember 100% who it might be. It might be. You might, we might be thinking about the same different, same person, but on different yeah, podcasts, yeah. right? But he, but he talks about the idea of being in awe, even if it's a couple of minutes a day, has a drastic improvement to your mental health. And so, if you're thinking about the arts, you go on yeah. and just having a look at a painting, you could be in awe of this painting, Absolutely. or let alone a show where you're in awe, in awe of these acrobatics or this musician or whatever. Yeah. I mean, naturally, it's going to have a positive effect. Yeah, I think I think um, I think it might be Jason Silver that yeah, you're talking okay. about. So Jason Silver, he talks like an incredibly inspiring. Yeah, like, he's a yeah. really inspiring <laughs> yeah. guy, isn't he? Yeah, I, I follow him on Instagram. He's amazing. Um, and yeah, shots of awe. He calls. He, mm. he talks about shots yeah. of awe and how you need them, you know, to, to for your well-being. And definitely, um, what we're doing is we're giving people shots of awe yeah. at the Adelaide Fringe. We are trying to measure not i mean it is the first thing is about measuring uh do people feel it do people feel that they feel better and they feel happier and they feel that their mental health's improved by having fringe happening and mm. by them coming but then i think the next step we have to look at is what say because the health budget is the biggest budget mm. you know that's the yeah. biggest money yeah. and everyone wants to find out how to save money in health and my feeling is art can save money in yeah. health. And so engaging in art, getting the whole of the population Community more engaged in art can actually have a big impact on saving the health budget. Mm. Well, that's that's the sort of, that's the line I'm going to be exploring oh, and um, I'm hoping <laughs> to be able to, you know, go to the politicians and find some great researchers. Well, there has to me. be some connection there, right? Mm. There has to be some parallel with it. If you're mm. enjoying and you're, uh, you're enjoying a moment, you're enjoying an act, you're enjoying mm. a song and a smile hits across your face, mm. and you're part of a community, you're in amongst people who are enjoying the same thing that you're enjoying, like there's yeah. got to be some positive benefit. 100%. There, right? it has to be. And I think there's been a lot of recognition as well that sport does that too. Does that so, too. Yeah. And, you know, the the amount of money that goes to sport compared to the amount of money that goes to art is, you know, it, like it's, yeah, it's you can't compare apart, the two, right? Yeah. So but I do think that uh, engaging in art, has that same impact that people are recognising that sport does as well. So there's there's a lot of work to be done around that and finding ways to measure that um, is the challenge coming at us. Brilliant. Mm. So I'm going to jump into you you as a CEO now and just to round off the Adelaide Fringe for everyone, it's starting in the next couple of days, isn't it? Yeah. Now? So, uh, you know, go and buy your ticket. Let's get up to a million sales. That would be, ama- be amazing. I am interested in you as Heather as a CEO, right? You've been nominated, um, uh, well, you've been, you've won some awards, I should say, not nominated, mm. but the CEO of the year from multiple magazines. You know, kudos there. What does it? What does that mean for you? What does what does CEO of the year look like? What is, I think you you obviously from what we can hear, you, you're doing wonderful things, inclusion, diversity, innovation, all that is 
you've built this mm. beautiful concoction of what it is to be a great leader. What does it mean to you to be CEO of the year and what do you think you're getting recognised for? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I also have an amazing team, right? So, no doubt. <laughs> um, I have an incredible team at the fringe and also I, um, I'm, because I've been very open about the fact that I, I, I always want us to be continuously improving mm. and ever learning, agile, responsive to what people are telling us, I never want to just be um, stale. Repeat, yeah. repeat, yeah. and 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 so the sorts of staff that have ended up coming to work with me at the fringe are those people. Mm. They're the people who also really love being agile and adaptive. But that's a testament to you, right? So then, one of the main roles of a CEO is to attract the right people, mm. get the right people on the bus, yeah? yeah. And so you, you've been able to do that by setting that vision yeah, and and then obviously going after it and setting yeah. the values around it as well. Yeah, and and we um, we, we it's take it took a few years to, no, no to get that right and I know they always talk about the storming, norming and performing, yep. you know, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and we did a bit of that. Um, but we, you know, we are a team that is very committed now to this whole. It's not we don't just talk. We we walk it. We yeah. walk it. We we do listen to how can we improve. We you know like in the last year we've launched our reconciliation action plan. We've we've launched our disability and um, inclusion uh, action plan. We've launched our sustainability action plan. And these things are deep in within the organisation mm. and they're not done by consultants. We actually do them in-house yeah, um, through lots of consultation. We have a lot of uh, the staff are just deeply connected to all this stuff. Yeah. And um, communication in the organisation is something we've worked really hard on cross-departmental communication, yeah. vertical, horizontal um, it's all those things that you have to make sure that no. I mean, I always say I don't want anyone to say I didn't. I never knew about yeah. that, or I was the last to hear about that. Yeah. Or, I want everyone to know everything. Really, yeah. Yeah. Um, I try to make myself. I'm very open door CEO, so I try to make myself available to anyone in the org at any time, mm -hmm. without anyone feeling undermined if someone comes direct yep. to me. Right. Um, but I do make even because we have 40 year round and then hundreds um, in the short uh, shorter term. But I do make make time in my diary for about a half an hour one-on-one um, -on -one with absolutely every single person in the org um, once a year that is separate to not nothing to do with performance yeah. reviews or anything it's, like that. It's just like this is your time to just tell me whatever. Yeah. And so even though that doesn't sound like a lot, I have a lot of communication yeah. with them all the time. No doubt. But I'm talking about just like I just want to make sure you're present that I, for them. That, yeah, and that everyone Brilliant. knows they can come anytime. But just if they never do come through, I just want them to know they can come in at yeah. time and tell me anything. Well, I mean, this is what your job is to go out in the world, great, bringing mm. great people to help you run this yeah. business. Your job is to go out in the world and bring in great acts and mm. great performers and mm. great industry to come in. So it's about building this groundswell of amazing yeah. human beings, which is, yeah. it seems like what you're doing. And, and also because it is, it's a lot of outward. As a CEO, you're looking out a lot, oh, right? So, yeah. I mean, I've that's where my executive director level staff are important at looking in as mm -hmm. well. So I can't be looking in as much as everyone might 
be because I'm also looking out and doing a lot of stakeholder engagement yeah. onto the outside. And then we, you know, I we do things like every year since the day I arrived and I did this in Sheffield as well, but we go away for planning days. We don't just do them at the office. We yeah. go away to somewhere, I really believe, get out in the green, go to the country. We Beautiful. book hotel, like, you know, stay in motel, take over some little village somewhere, yeah. little country town or somewhere up in the hills or whatever, and we do our, that's when we talk about our personas and our user journeys and yeah. what about things that we want to improve and um, and that, um, yeah, we, we do a lot of work that um, uh, we I don't think you can do it as well if you stay in the office. Um, so we do that at least once a year. Um, and a lot of opportunity for I like to make sure that there's a lot of opportunity for staff to develop within the organisation. Yeah, right. So we've had now, you know, I've done eight fringes. Mm-hmm. There's quite a few people that have done all of them with me mm-hmm. in the organisation, probably eight or so. Yeah. And then there's probably another eight or ten who have done six or seven. Mm-hmm. Some have done five. And there's always a few that have just, you know, been only one or two years. Yeah. Um, but now we're getting, you know, we've got we've got people that are really in in that stride of yeah. knowing that we um, we're always listening. We we are we're, we if you want an opportunity to move to a different department or to move up or and we often we have um, internships and yeah. a lot of the staff that work at the fringe st- uh, in my time started as an intern. So there's a lot of opportunity for people to step yeah. in um, new opportunities in the organisation or new positions or step upwards or sideways. Yeah. Um, so always trying to make sure there's a lot of professional development, learnings. Um, yeah. I mean I try to learn more and more as well. Like I, I did the year-long governor's leadership, leadership course, yeah. which I really enjoyed, enjoyed. and learnt a lot at. That was a great. Was um, it demanding of your time? That's putting that time and effort in. Yeah. Do you believe that that's something all leaders should do? Put time and effort into their own growth. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the governor's leadership was demand. I mean, I'm doing this course at MIT at the moment. Yeah. Same. I have to be on the. I'm, I'm on Zooms till three in the morning. Yeah. Well. Because I'm on Boston time for it, but it it is important, I think, because like um, you just learn so mm. so many. You do learn new methodologies or new ways of thinking. Um, I always try and bring things, but I'm a very practical yeah. person, so I always try and bring what I'm learning in the course almost immediately back to the oh, what about this and, you know, sharing it yeah, all with yeah. them. And um, and one of our exec directors is doing the GLF at the uh, Leaders Institute this yeah. year. But it's, it's compulsory attendance. You're not allowed yeah. to miss anything. And, I mean, um, you know, it's very much give up your weekends, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. But. Once you you make connections with people that you st- I'm still friends with all my cohorts from 100%. the GLF and yeah. um, I like to um, make sure that I keep my brain ad- agile and thinking. I but, love it. Yeah. Now I'm really conscious of your time because you have to shoot off in the next ten minutes or so. Um, I just want to ask one last question before we um. We jump into what is our quick fire questions at the end of the uh, end of the podcast. Have a bit of fun just towards the end. I th- um, I'm, I'm really interested in the next steps. Let's 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 look beyond the fringe, right? Beyond mm. the fringe festival for Heather. What does that look like? Where does the world take you outside of the fringe festival? Um, 
Well, I mean, I don't really know. I'm I'm at fringe for a little bit longer. Yeah. But oh, you contracted think, an all um, the above. I get yeah. that, but yeah. I think I um I'd love to step into um some sort of cultural leader role that is about the broader creative industries. Mm. Um, I think there's some real work that can be done in bringing together different parts of the creative industries. Yeah. There's some interdisciplinary connections that could take us on real step change and growth. Bringing uh, At the moment we're a bit siloed with the um, visual arts and, yeah. the, you know, the yeah. games are over here and yeah. the films and so on. I think creative industries as a whole is um, something that we can really bring together a bit more and understand it and respect it as a as a job creation industry. Like mm. there's opportunity there. Um, so I'd love to step into something like that. I think in some sort of leadership role around boosting the creative industries opportunities across Australia. Amazing. And um, help help more people. Um, realise their dreams in the creative industries. And I think everyone will be calling you out for in that in that role eventually. So because uh, you know you have the ability to make an impact, which is fantastic. So we're going to jump into some quick fire questions as we round off the podcast. I had a thousand other questions to ask you, so I'm, um, a, I'm a bit bummed that it's it's gone. We, we <laughs> sorry, fall. no, that's fine. You're a busy human being. I'm lucky I've just enough. Got a few days. No, that's right. I'm lucky enough to uh, look. We're, we're, we've got this podcast happening right before the Fringe Festival, so I can imagine your time is limited. So I appreciate the hour and a half uh, with you. As we jump into, are you a big reader? Do you read much? Do you get in yes, read book? What are you reading? reading what are you reading right now? Oh, right now. I mean, <laughs> right now I'm reading the Fringe Guide. Yeah. Uh, that's probably what I'm reading. Back to front. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, actually, I'm reading a book by Fenton Bailey, who is the producer of RuPaul, mm-hmm. and also the producer of many, many great documentaries and other things. And it's called Screen Age and it's a, okay. his stories of um, producing amazing and he, he's, he's a create like he was in, for, he was at the forefront of reality television. Mm. Um, he's at the forefront of those early shows that used to give people cameras and they could make diaries and film themselves yeah, yeah. and film their lives, which was obviously now it's different because everyone's got we a got phone mobile, but yeah. back in those days. Yeah. And actually Fenton Bailey, he's actually coming to uh, Adelaide Fringe to launch his book and so I'm reading that right now. Well done. Yeah. Very good. Is there any book that stands out from the crowd for you, that you've, like, the one that you might have gifted more than any other? I've probably given Miguel Street by V.S. Nepal to people a lot. Yeah. It's, um, it's a book that I just love the dialogue in that book. It's mm. very funny. It's like a – it's on Who Lives on Miguel Street yeah, and okay. just a day in the life kind of vibe of yeah. a book. Yeah. Brilliant. I, Brilliant. What's one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? Well, I think, you know, we're all – we are all the script writer of our own life. Mm. And sometimes I would get stuck. If you were a big – if you are an outspoken person like me and always shaking things up and – Sometimes, you know, you can get a lot of judgment from people on the sidelines, sometimes negative judgment. Yeah. And I would sometimes listen to it too much and now I just think, nah, they're not writing my – they're not the script writer of my life. Mm. I'm the script writer of I my love life. That. 
I mean, you so I try not to let those negatives, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's always going to be someone that doesn't like the movie or the screenplay or whatever it is, oh. right? So, and the more up, the more you move up as a woman CEO, the more people you know have a go. So yeah, yeah. So I just think, well, I'm the scriptwriter of my life, and I whatever I do is what I mean. I can be sure that 100%. I don't need to worry. Well, about again, that why live within the confines of what? That's right. Yeah, I love and it. and I think. Um, yeah, a lot of the innovation that I've pushed for has sometimes, yeah, rattled people or ruffled feathers or whatever. But in the end, it's been amazing to have gone on the journey and then come out and think, "Wow, that's that was so exciting to yeah. to to collaborate with people that wanted to sort of jump off." Well, the I think cliff. the great thing from what I'm hearing about you is that you do this because you want the better of the Fringe Festival. You want the better of the organisation, the community. The best. So it always yeah. comes from a good space. So yeah. kudos. If you could have three people to invite for dinner, who would they be? Oh, dear. Okay. Um, well, this year at the Fringe it would be Penny Arcade, mm-hmm. um, Queen Kong. Queen Kong, yeah. Yes. And, well, Sarah Millican. As well, the great comedian. I mean, I'd invite lot. Well, I'd love to. When I'd love to invite loads of people to a dinner party, but I think this year they would be the ones. They would be the ones. I love how you turn that into a fringe. I know because uh, my mind is so my <laughs> no, mind no. is so stuck on the fringe. No, right it's now. brilliant yeah. because it actually anyone listening they go oh, actually I'm going to go check these guys out, which is, <laughs> which is fantastic. More ticket sales. See, I know what you're up to. Um, <laughs> What's some of the best advice that you've ever received? Um, probably just breathe, take a minute, pause, pause. And what was um, one of the one of the one of the trainers in the in the leadership uh, course at the GLF? Called it the pro. Okay. Pause, reflect, and open from the heart. Yeah, great. So if something happens that you really just want to jump, mm. like have a reaction to, yeah. just breathe and pro. <laughs> Pause, reflect, and open from the heart. Yeah. So I I, I do love that because yeah, that is um, great. sometimes when you just want to go, why did someone do? Oh, I was going. Pause, reflect, and open. Yeah, from you're that. not answering from an emotional <laughs> yeah, state. You're exactly. answering from a bit more of a logical state. That's brilliant. If you had access to a time machine, where would you go? Oh dear, um, <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, I think um, my immediate thought is I want to go to a to see a. A, a gig of one of my favourite performers yeah, yeah. or something, which isn't really uh, – I know that a time machine can go, what, back to the pyramids All or something, forward, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Most times in human history will be quite smelly, I think, <laughs> because <laughs> there's a very small time that uh, we've all got to shower. Oh, and I so on. Yeah, I know. I've always <laughs> wondered that. I watch movies sometimes, I go – you know, they haven't had a shower for two weeks. I wonder how they – but they just – Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just um, – I mean, I, I, I don't – I'd love to go uh, – I'd love to go back to um, like my – even just like seeing the life of my parents, mm. like when they um, when they grew up in Glasgow and just they were on this 
it's the it, there's just all the trams running yeah. around mm. and you know a real fantastic time I think so I wouldn't mind going back to see what my child my parents' yeah. childhood was like. Just bring some good soap. Fifties in yeah, the Glasgow, yeah. <laughs> but it'd be probably quite a hard time. Uh, you know, be. there'd be a lot of. It would be quite harsh, but wouldn't it be great to sort of get a little bit of a sense of what your parents or your grandparents' life yeah. was well, like? Yeah, it's one of my favourite answers on this show. Is almost you've nailed it there. Someone said to us one time that he would go back and visit his grandfather when he was eighteen, just to see how he yeah. reacted and acted and and. Yeah, that that's kind of what I'm yeah, thinking too. Like, fun. I would quite like to go back and see. And when you see old archival footage of you know, the 40s or something or photograph albums and you just think, oh, wouldn't I just want to get yeah, in there, yeah. just go in there and yeah. see what it's like. Oh, I'm with you 100%. If you had, if you, sorry, if your house was on fire and all your pets and family, everyone was safe, is there anything that you'd go back and grab? Oh, I think I'd go back for art. The art. I've yeah, bought yeah. paintings yeah. Um, on, that I just adore on my walls with my, my partner and I just – to the point that there's no room left on the walls. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we go back for the paintings. Yeah. Um, got an amazing painting by Gavin Wanganeen. Yeah, love to go Gav. for that. Gav's been on the show. Um, I love his paintings. Yeah. Oh, and also Zachariah Fielding, who is in Electric Fields, mm-hmm. um, is an incredible painter from the APY lands. Mm. And um, I'd love to make sure I got my Zachariah painting. Uh, yeah, and a few others. And my son is an amazing artist as well, so... Um, I'd grab as many paintings uh, as from the could. wall. <laughs> right, last one. If you had one superhero power, what would it be? Oh, superhero <laughs> power. Um, to make sure that there's enough funding for all artists that want to perform, uh, mm. make sure there's enough money for the arts to thrive and, um, you know, we could all conspire to make our life a bit better if we can all get get involved in more art. So uh, I think, yeah, my superpower would be to try and make the lot of artists a lot better. Excellent. I love it. Look, thank you so much for your time. It's been an amazing chat with you and, and to be honest to hear your journey all the way from the UK through to Australia and all the things that you've done uh, here I want to thank you on behalf of everyone for the amazing work that you and the team are putting together down there at the Fringe. It's um, a remarkable event. It's putting South Australian, particularly Adelaide, on the map. Um, you know, keep up the good work and keep striving. I want to see. I want to see us take on the number one and uh, become that in the in the future years. We uh, can is there, do it. Is there in any in any way people can get in contact with you through LinkedIn? Is that the best way that people could connect with you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm I'm not great on the messages. Yeah. Every now and again, I go, no, no, no. oh, there's 50 messages yeah. that I haven't seen. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's just probably f- the best way. Just to follow you, perfect. Yeah, don't bombard with messages, but just to follow. <laughs> Only because I'm just not very like. <laughs> I, I would mean, not. I'm we terrible. get bombarded anyway, right? You have a C <laughs> in front of your title and all of a sudden uh, your inbox fills up very quickly. But thank you again to you and the team. Thank you for your time today. Thank um, you. Looking forward to watching what the future holds for you in the Adelaide Fringe. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. 
And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care, guys. All the best. Bye.